Peers have criticised the government, who they say see disabled people as an afterthought. So don't see disability as a burden. See, see a disabled person as someone that you want to, you know, be part of the community, yeah. that you want to be your work colleague, your friend, your neighbour. You know, it's all about inclusion, and I think that's where we're lacking, really. They say patience is a virtue But I can wait as long as you do for a change Call me insane but that's my aim Hi everyone, um, welcome back or just welcome if you've not been here before to the Untelevised podcast. Um, this is a podcast where we explore um, possibilities for social change. So we look at how the world or our society is at present. We look at how we, we might want it to be. How do we want to change it? How might we get there? Um, and very importantly, what kind of role could we all play in getting us there? My name is Mona um, and I am one half of your hosting duo and I am here with Fazeo. Hi Fazeo. Hi Mona. <laughs> How are you feeling today? It's so funny. Um, I don't know why we laugh every time we do that. No, I think it's because you almost can't do it in a way that doesn't start to feel like a bit gimmicky. But hopefully for people listening, I don't know. Like, I mean, I feel like I'm repeating myself all the time, yeah. but you know, drill it in. Um, but to answer your question, not too bad. I feel like um, a mode of transformation and journeying at the moment where just being quite self-reflective and yeah. I mean, I feel like that fits quite well with, with our topic of the day. True. That wasn't and that was unintentional. Yeah, that wasn't, Promise wasn't you that was unintentional. Um, scripted at all. Um, so this season, um, which is our fourth season, I had to think about that for a second, um, and we're now on the third episode of that fourth season, is a season that we are producing with the new Economics Foundation and Shared Assets. And we are exploring land justice. We're looking at land. Every Everything about land like what is it for what do we do with it how do we own it how do we live on it how do we move on it how do we control it how do we share it whatever <laughs> so we're going through a big process around land and in the previous episodes we started off I guess almost with the most precarious end we looked at what it means to not belong to any particular land you know people who move from land to land whether by force um, or by choice and so we explored the idea of diaspora communities, um, migration, traveler communities, and so on. And then in the second episode, we kind of looked at the opposite end of that. So what does it mean to actually belong to land? Um, and I guess belong to land more so than how land belongs to us. You know, we're trying to move beyond the sort of capitalist framework, but what does it mean to have a home somewhere, build a home somewhere? What does it, what, what do we use land for? What does community mean? How do we create it? How do we, how is that a broader topic than just ownership? And then now today we're looking at, I guess, once you then do belong to land, how do we sort of almost go one step further and how do we start to both heal the land, but also allow the land to heal us, whatever that means? Mm. I'm gonna be taking some notes this episode. <laughs> yeah, for your transformation. <laughs> yeah. So yes, not just keeping things at status quo, not just accepting, you know, belonging only, but how do we move beyond that? How do we heal? And actually in our climate 
season, last season. We explored that principle quite a lot. We talked mm. about regeneration as a principle that isn't just sustainability. It's not just saying we just keep things at, like not at least not getting any worse. We actually looked at what it means to replenish land, to make it better, to make it healthier, to make, you know, to da not just to stop damaging it, but to actually restore it. And so now I guess we're looking at what that means for us as people, as opposed to just for the land. Yeah, um, again, um, quite a lot to explore quite there. Existential, yes. <laughs> um, and as always, there's a few things that might help us to understand and to contextualize that exploring. So let's jump into our learn section and give you the foundation on which to listen to our fascinating <laughs> conversations. Um, yeah, let's jump into the learn. So in my interview today, there is a couple of words you might hear, um, which you may have heard before, but which it might help to kind of define for you. So the first one of those is abolitionism. Um, now, abolitionism, as I guess maybe the word suggests, um, is about comes from the idea of abolishing something. Um, and it's often used um, when we talk about sort of political and social systems. It's often used when we talk about the prison system, for example. It's also gotten used now to talk about the schooling system. And it's the idea of this, you know, keeping in line with healing is that if we really want to change society, if we really want to heal the wounds of a lot of our current structures, if we want to sort of repair that damage, it's not enough to just slightly tweak the edges of the systems that we already have. We can't just say, we'll make them a little bit nicer, we'll make them a little bit better. It's not just about reforms. It's a belief system that says that we have to abolish what is currently in place and rebuild. Otherwise, we cannot actually achieve like real change. So in the, for example, context of the prison system, which is where you might hear ab abolitionism quite often, it's kind of talking about abolishing prisons, not just about maybe looking at whether they should be better centers for rehabilitation or whether they could have slightly nicer facilities or whatever. It's like there shouldn't be prisons because they fundamentally are wrong and they cause harm. So that is abolitionism in its very simple form and you know you can obviously as always look these terms up and there will be tons and tons of academic literature on them which I won't go into right now. Another word used by one of our guests is gentrification and again you may have heard this word thrown around a lot actually these days um, and you might wonder again what the rep maybe the link is to healing but gentrification again is is a process by which you really sort of change something from its original I don't know, its original makeup or its original intention. And so in, in this case, it, we talk about areas, cities, places, right? When we're talking about land, places get gentrified. And it's essentially sort of a movement by which an area that maybe used to be considered quite run down or quite poor or not desirable to live in starts to become a bit hip and trendy and people start to realize that, oh, maybe there's money to be made here. Or maybe actually because it's a bit run down, we can buy very, very cheap property here and we can do it up. And maybe this is where we should start, you know, setting up some new businesses and so on. And so an area gets, in some people's eyes, the place is actually restored. It's improved. It's maybe even healed, some people might feel, because actually, you know, it wasn't considered a very desirable or good place to be before. 
But um, what often happens in that process is that the people that were originally in that place, who lived there, who have who had lives there and homes there, maybe not what looked nice and fancy to you know to the outside, but that's where they lived, that's where they'd invested, that's where they tried to make a life for themselves are removed from those areas. They're priced out of those areas. It's actually not that they benefit from the lovely new scenery and the lovely new shops. It actually means that all that lovely stuff comes in, rents skyrocket, and the people that used to live there cannot afford to live there anymore. And so actually, rather than it seeming like you've maybe restored or healed an area, you've actually caused a lot of damage to communities that used to live there. So that is gentrification. One other term that you might hear that might need a bit of definition is racial capitalism, which I'm not going to go into now, but just to say that we actually have in our climate series an episode on climate and capitalism, where our guest Assad talks quite a lot about racial capitalism and actually how that fits within the broader picture. So I'm going to refer you to that episode if this is a, that's the term that's new for you. Yeah, thanks, Mona. Um yeah, great, great rundown there. I'm going to pivot slightly because my conversation um, and my guest is from the disabled community and we speak a lot about disabled people's experience of land and that relationship with healing. So it helps for my conversation if we give some context to disabled people's experience. Um, and in the UK, I think there's a perception that disabled community is quite small, but there are actually 11 million disabled people in Britain um, and they make up almost 20% of working age population. So this is not sort of an isolated experience that we're talking about here. So when myself and my guest are speaking, we talk about something called the social model of disability um, as something that we're sort of aspiring to or both believe in. The social model of disability was developed by disabled people to take action against what they identified as their oppression and exclusion from society. And it was actually developed as a direct challenge to the prevailing models of the time, um, which are the medical model and the charity model. Um, and both of those models view disability as an individual medical problem that needs to either be prevented, cured or contained. And they view disabled people as sort of unfortunate people that need to be catered for, segregated um, from the rest of society, um, given charitable services, etc. And they rest on the assumption, importantly, that what disabled people can't do, quote unquote, can't do because of their impairments should be the focus and that we need to focus on helping disabled people to overcome their physical and mental impairments as a solution to that. And that posits the disabled person as the problem. In contrast, the social model of disability takes a radically different view and actually says that it's not the impairment that is the problem, but rather the oppression, exclusion and discrimination of people with impairments. And that is actually society's attitudes um, that mean that disabled people have a different experience of the world than non-disabled people. So they then say that solutions come in removing those barriers and those barriers can both be built barriers. So in the way that we design our societies, we design our cities, we design our land, we design our open spaces, or, and more often they can be attitudes and perceptions. So how people view disabled people, the way the media writes about disabled people, things like that, that 
influence the policies that are then made or influence the way that disabled people are treated. So the social model of disability argues that the problems rest in those things rather than in the fact that people have impairments. And actually, if we were to transform those things, having an impairment wouldn't be a barrier to experiencing life as fully as anyone that doesn't have an impairment. So yeah, um, another big concept, but really helps to put into context our conversation. And especially when we consider healing and access to spaces and land and how that might transform one's experience. First up this week is my guest, Nikki Myers. And Nikki is the chair of the Cambridgeshire and Essex branch of Disabled People Against Cuts or DPAC. Now, DPAC is a national organisation that fights for justice and human rights for all disabled people by challenging things like austerity measures and their specific impact on disabled people's lives. Nikki herself is a wheelchair user who has an extensive background in community development work but was forced to medically retire when she was just 32 years old. Now that hasn't curtailed her from being heavily involved in activism work and she continues to fight for wide ranging issues from disability rights to environmental rights to anti-austerity issues and she's involved with a wide variety of organisations in doing that. And most interestingly, in those organisations, she's often taken on the role of ensuring that they're inclusive and accessible to everyone, specifically focusing on making sure that marginalised people feel comfortable and don't have any barriers to accessing them. Now, when we sat down to talk, Nikki had unfortunately been shielding for almost two years due to the impacts of the pandemic and specifically the impacts of the pandemic on disabled people. So the topic of land and healing and connection to land was very relevant as we sat down to have our conversation. I see land as something that's been stolen from a lot of people. I'm a big fan of the late Tony Benn, who said something about how the establishment became the establishment. Um, and he said they simply stole land and property from the poor surrounded themselves with weak-minded sycophants for protection, gave themselves titles of been wielding power ever since. I lived in Sheffield before I moved to Cambridge, and while I was living there, I learned about the mass trespass in the Peak District in the 1930s. And before that, um, most people weren't allowed on any land that we now perceive like there were no national parks you had to get permission from a land landowner to walk on a footpath um, you weren't allowed to stray from the footpath and they decided who was deserving and not deserving to walk on their land um, but this mass trespass of hundreds of people led by a chap called benny rothman um, Mass trespass was not a, a criminal offence at that point, but the gamekeepers tried to stop them and there were so many that they didn't succeed. And um, some people were imprisoned for, you know, inciting riotous behaviour or some rubbish charge. Um, but they just wanted access to mountains and moorland. Um, 
but those prison sentences for you know short sentences four months they galvanized the public and um the national parks were then formed in 1949 so the general public had access to those spaces and they were protected. Um, and that kind of civil disobedience, that's the kind of thing that I get excited about, that peaceful mass resistance. And it works. That's the, the exciting thing about it, is that it works. I think you and I might be kindred spirits, Nikki, because that excites me as well. When you were saying it, I was I could physically feel myself becoming excited. And I definitely want to explore that sort of activism, civil disobedience, and maybe what that looks like now and how that might be changing a little later on in our conversation. But first, um, I want to actually reel it back a little bit and explore why people might want access to land. I mean, the theme of this episode is land and healing. Um, why might people want to connect to the land? How can land heal us? How does land and the idea of healing, how do they link together? Uh, humanity is part of nature and we are so disconnected from it because of the trappings of modern life and the long hours that we work and um, a, a million different things and I think that's intrinsically bad for our general physical well-being and our mental well-being. Uh, the best thing I've seen at a protest recently was one that said I thought I had depression but it turned out just to be capitalism and I think that says so much about our disconnection and the impact that that has. Um, I think historically, when people were sick with diseases like tuberculosis, once they were at a certain level of healing, they were sent away to the coast and the countryside to finish their sort of rehabilitation if they were rich enough. And I think we've lost that um, sense of how nurturing it can be to be with nature wherever it is um, and I can't imagine that happening nowadays like as soon as you're vaguely capable um, we're ordered back to work you know um, there's so much research on um, how getting away from built environments, even for a short time, can help with mental health. And in terms of disabled people, living with chronic health conditions can really take its toll on mental well-being. So um, if it does help the individual, then I absolutely applaud anything that helps to alleviate that extra level of stress. What, what a powerful statement. I thought I had depression, but it turned out just to be capitalism. Uh, I think that, yeah, like you say, that says a lot. Um, so Nikki, there you mentioned specifically fair access to land sort of for disabled people and the idea that land can have a special meaning to disabled people. And I'm aware you're the chair of the Cambridge branch of Disabled People Against Cuts. 
So can you enlighten us a little bit about how this conversation affects disabled people specifically? And I'd be especially interested to understand how it affects disabled people in both urban and natural environments. In some ways, access to urban uh, green spaces is easier because they've generally been um, made, they've been, you know, um, you know, they're not historical green spaces. So access can be built into them because although uh, disabled people want some access to some green spaces, we are realistic. We don't want access to every beach and every hill and mountaintop. You know, that's for some that is just never going to happen and that's okay. But it's about having some access and some very basic barriers being removed that stop us getting there. So um, near me, there's a, a country park, um, there's an accessible lavatory in the car park, but the car park has like shale on the ground, which is a real no-no when it comes to wheelchair users. We just get stuck. Um, things like, being able to loan equipment like you know super off-road wheelchairs and scooters can be um, a real bonus in terms of getting around natural spaces that our own equipment isn't designed for. Nikki what you're saying is reminding me of something we spoke about in our learn section which is the social model of disability and um, because there you're speaking about barriers basically to access and the social model of disability is essentially the principle that disabled people aren't disabled by a physical impairment or by their physical impairments, but by the world around them that is not built for them or is not built to, to sort of include them. And especially artificial barriers, like you speak about a certain type of surface that could easily be any surface, you know, a car park but is such a barrier for people being able to access the space. Um, unfortunately though, this, this sort of theory is not widely adopted. I work a lot with um, deaf and disabled people's organizations. So I'm quite familiar with this concept. And ever since I first come across it, I've really struggled to understand why it's not universally accepted. So I'm hoping you might have maybe some opinions, thoughts or insights on why this isn't adopted and sort of share with us a bit more about the impact that it has. Yeah, firstly, if I could add to your definition of the social model, it's not just about the built environment, it's also about attitudes of people. And I think that's the reason um, why it's not universally adopted. There was an episode of Dispatches about the Department for Work and Pensions um, in December 2021. And at the end of that, um, they had uh, done a, a huge poll and 35% of people responded that disabled people are a burden on the public, which is shocking and heartbreaking. I think we have shoddy journalism to answer for a lot of those attitudes. This ground your rhetoric is not as loud as it used to be but it's still there and it's still in people's memories. It's not being yelled quite as loud. Um, 
and you know people aren't aware that uh, four million disabled people of working age in in the UK are in paid employment. You know that is just uh, not in their consciousness. Um, and I think unless they're directly affected or they've got close friends or family members who are neurodiverse, disabled or deaf, they don't take the time to learn about the issues that affect us and our small p politics. And that's despite a huge, you know, years and years of, of disabled people trying to raise awareness uh it's yeah it's very sad um i am hoping though that um going to be uh, a program on the bbc a drama retelling the um the historic acts of um the disability action network in the 1980s um about the fight for our very very basic rights so these are the people who trained themselves in the front of buses and stuff like that um and without those acts of um non-violent civil disobedience i i dread to think where we would be so i'm eternally grateful for the actions of those people and um that program is called then Barbara met Alan, if anybody wants to check it out on iPlayer. I think what you say, Nikki, is is completely true. And um, it makes me think about, because on this podcast, we often talk about the macro and the micro changes that we can make. And one of the micro changes that we need to make in our own environments is this change in attitude, because linked to the whole notion of capital capitalism, is productivity and worth and value based on productivity and I think that has a big part to play in people's attitudes to anyone that fits outside of the traditional notions of productivity which is like you say long hours and <laughs> of work and um, things like that and one of the things that many of our guests on this podcast have spoken about is the right to joy and a full life um, and a thriving life just because you know we're alive <laughs> and that not being conditional on anything and I think once we can mentally get to that space then a lot of the other changes might happen um, but I'm hoping I mean because even outside of any sort of moral um, or fair or just or any notion there's also just some plain and simple if we're even to feed into capitalist um, things like uh, finances and saving money and there's even in, from that notion I believe there's some reasons why a universal relationship with land um, and access to land being fair makes sense right there's benefits to land just being accessible outside of even the benefits to individual people um, so even if someone did have an opinion that people aren't deserving maybe they might be might be swayed by some of those arguments yeah absolutely i think what people don't understand is that if you make even the smallest changes to physical access for disabled people it also has massive benefits for older people and um people pushing buggies and prams um cyclists 
but you know and we're trying to encourage more walking and cycling so the the things that we're asking for it's not just for us you know it has a, a definitely has a, a wider benefit I, I loved what you were saying about um, valuing being alive and joy because I think that's an alien concept to so many people because they are, you know, struggling so much just to keep their head above water um, and in precarious work. And there isn't the time or energy for joy or to look around um, and see what's happening outside of their difficult lives. So on that notion, Nikki, do you have any ideas? I mean, this is a big question, but do you have any ideas of how we can move forward from the current state of things where we view land as just a place to sort of barely, and I'm doing that in, in um, inverted commas, barely exist and just a space to develop on and take from? Um, and I mean, including in this, the notion of simple things that maybe can be done to make it more accessible for all. Um, and I'm especially interested because um, our last season was all on the climate and climate justice in the notion of us finding ways not to just take from the land, but also maybe there are also ways we can even give back to it because um, we, we spoke a lot about a concept called regeneration in that season, uh, which is the idea that we should not just sustain the way things are, but as much as possible actually give back to nature and have that co-beneficial co relationship. Um, so I feel like that's a really big question, but do you have any ideas of how we might move beyond where we are to something more ideal? So I, I definitely think that there are ways that individuals can give back to the land, even if it is rewilding their garden um, or, you know, planting some wildflowers, you know, outside their door or, um, cutting down on their meat consumption because that has an international impact on land that we don't necessarily see but so much land is used now for animal agriculture so if people can cut down or eliminate that I think that would have a huge impact um, not just on the climate crisis but on land and forests in particular I think um, in terms of changing the public mindset's attitude to valuing the land, I, I think we could remind people of how important their hourly walk was during our many lockdowns. I think those walks, even if it was just around their village or their town, and seeing a few trees or a few daffodils or whatever, I think they saved lives. And I don't know what's happened in people's minds um, about that since lockdowns have finished, but I hope that it's planted seeds um, in people's minds that this is good for me and, and this is good for my kids and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, and in terms of, of changing policy it's it's always a good idea to lobby your MP about anything that's important to you 
Um, and when local authorities are doing their planning, we can suggest things like green corridors between towns, which not only provide green spaces for us and for wildlife, but they, they help to, to capture pollution. Um, so it's win-win it's really. And they can have cycle paths going through them, which gives many people physical access. And if you add into that things like tactile paving, which helps visually impaired people, that they're not that difficult uh, things to do. Do you know what I mean? Um, I think having um, country parks, botanical gardens, just nature reserves, really small ones in cities um, can be a huge bonus for everyone. There's one um, just five minutes from my house and I can still hear roads to some extent, but um, the pathways are fine as long as it's not muddy. Um, lots of people walking their dogs there, kids playing in the trees. And there are pathways around it, but there are also quite wild areas where, you know, the city council organises things in the summer holidays, where kids can go and make dens and learn about, um, you know, which animals made which paw prints and things like that. There's a little fish pond, very, very tiny fish pond there as well. Um, but it's important for kids' education to have that stuff as well, I think. Uh, certainly what you said about um, lockdown and um, the increased access to nature or the increased time spent in nature, I can definitely resonate with. I was lucky enough to be able to moved back with my parents for um, a while and they live in Surrey and it was just wonderful to be, uh, be in walking distance of so many green spaces and I know it definitely saved my mental and probably physical health um, to, to have that opportunity and um, for all its faults I, I think that some parts of London definitely greater London are lucky also to have that sort of access to urban green spaces so Nikki, I want to awaken your slightly more radical side now. <laughs> You've spoken a lot about your activism or your belief in activism, and you've even mentioned things like the mass trespassing, which is really exciting. Um, I want to know about um, some of your ideas around how we can fight for this change in a slightly more radical way. And one of the things I'm especially interested in is uh, the impact that the police crime sentencing and courts bill is having on activism in um, disabled people's spaces, um, especially when fighting for land, because we know that that policy is so rooted in our ability to actually be on land and our right to be on land. Absolutely. I've spoken about this at quite a few protests against the, uh, the police bill. Um, I mentioned before that all of our rights as disabled people were not given, they were fought for um, by people, um, ordinary people, you know, just like myself, who put their bodies on the line, put their 
freedom on the line and disabled people are scared because what we do is we make noise and we make us a nuisance of ourselves and for that to carry potential um, custodial sentences is terrifying because police custody and um, to be in prison is not safe for disabled people no matter what their uh, impairment is is just not safe um, I've been arrested a couple of times the first time was quite funny uh, they couldn't get me to the police station so they just de-arrested me and uh, the second time they tried to get me into a van couldn't so they had to take me to in a taxi which was hilarious because the police had blocked some roads at that protest and they wouldn't let the taxi through uh, because we weren't an official police vehicle you know a, a friend of mine um james brown was um, recently sent down for six months. He did the action at London City Airport where he climbed on top of the aeroplane. And he has 3% vision. And it was only in the last few weeks of his sentence that he was given access to his specialist glasses so he could see anything really which is quite disgusting. And what the prison service do is they prefer to pay compensation after a sentence than to provide what people actually need whilst they're in custody. Uh, because I don't know, really, they don't care. I mean, it probably would be cheaper to make those reasonable adjustments and put in that support while people are in custody or in prison or whatever. But um, it's just seems to be too much trouble or they're doing it as a deterrent. I'm not sure what goes through their minds. Maybe they think that people will be so downtrodden at the end of their sentence that they won't have the energy to, to claim that compensation and to, and to make noise about how they've been treated. But it's not good. And if you add COVID into the mix, then being arrested or being sent to prison becomes even more unsafe for disabled protesters. I think a lot of people take for granted the way things are. And obviously there are a lot of improvements that should and can and need to be made. But I mean, throughout the, this is now the fourth season of this podcast, even myself, who is someone who I would say has an above average interest in activism, social change, social justice, have learned so much about how it is ordinary people that have formed the life that I'm able to live now, whether that be wage control, minimum wage, working weeks, all of these things, you know. And I think a lot of us do take that for granted and don't necessarily and presume they're givens. Um, so definitely, I think more people need to be aware of how our rights to fight for our rights is being attacked. Um, uh, and in that vein, actually, we've covered quite a lot. And I think people might be feeling quite inspired, but maybe slightly overwhelmed by their place in this sort of conversation. Um, if people do want to fight towards land justice, um, whether that be fighting towards their own right to exist on land and heal from land and heal the land, 
or whether they want to join in your fight, which is more focused on disabled people's access. Um, what are some tangible things that they can do? You've mentioned some things earlier around sort of um, rewilding gardens, for example, reducing our meat consumption. But what what may, might be like the first step that you would advise everyone to do? And then also what are things that people can do to support um, your branch or the wider movement of disabled people against cuts? So I I think if people feel inspired to become more politically active in this way, then they can look around at the organisations in their area, so whether there's a branch of Extinct Rebellion, if that's the way that they want to go, or even um, Greenpeace, or, you know, it, it doesn't have to be um, the most radical groups that, that you become involved in. There's a whole range of strategies that are going to be needed to make change and some of them are really spicy and radical and will result in prison charges and some of them are theatrical and artistic and change hearts and minds and um, are very very low risk of any kind of police intervention and what you might find is that even if you start at that lower level you may feel then more confident to do something a little bit more risky. So you go on a march and then maybe you get involved in an action doing well-being or um, legal observing or something like that. Um, because like the first, you know, thing I did with Extinction Rebellion was um, blocked one of the five bridges in London and I was terrified. I thought, I don't know, I just thought we would all be arrested and it would be hideous. Actually, what they did was um, they arrested my carer, my personal assistant, which was almost as bad. But that is a police tactic. Um, they hone in on who they perceive as vulnerable, whether that's um, people who are BIPOC, um, disabled, queer, whatever, and they try to rile up the people around them, but because Extinct Rebellion is so non-violent, that was never going to happen. Um, so in terms of um, accessibility um, in, in trying to change the world, I think the most important thing you can do is when you're in your community spaces or your activist spaces is to look around and see who's missing. Is your meeting only white? Are there any disabled people there? Um, have you got live transcription going on your Zoom meetings? Do you make sure that your meeting spaces um, have level access? Um, do you routinely include access information when you're making a Facebook event so people don't have to take their time and energy to ask about well how long is the march and um, and and things like that. But um, in terms of DPAC, what we really need are allies who can support us financially um, or by sharing the work that we do and the issues that um, are important to us, and and by joining us on the streets. 
because there is safety in numbers um, as activists and you would always be welcome as an ally or as a, a disabled person who is new to activism. Um, I would encourage people to subscribe to the Disability News Service so that they can keep up to date with what's going on for us. So for a while now, um, the voluntary sector have offered services like arts on prescription. Um, and in some parts of the UK, there is also something called farming on prescription where people can um, learn how to, to grow food. Um, there's a, a farm in Suffolk called the Clinic Care Farm. Close to me in Cambridgeshire, there used to be an organisation called Red to Green, which um, taught people living with mental uh, health, learning disabilities, how to grow and sell fruit and veg. So it was almost funding itself, but um, their funding was cut. There's a place in Dorset called Calm on the Farm. Um, so th this to me is part of a, a holistic medical approach that could gently start to incorporate time spent outside and around nature if that's appropriate and it's not appropriate for everyone. Um, there, I read recently about a project in Detroit. They've got this huge two acre community space um with um space for growing food and 200 um fruit trees and it feeds 2000 households which for people living in food deserts um is incredibly important and they've incorporated a sensory garden into that space and i think having projects like that everywhere would be hugely beneficial please and last up, um, Nikki, a question we ask to everyone, uh, but often people find the hardest to answer. When, if at all, do you think your work may no longer be needed? I mean, I think that it's everyone's aim that's in sort of a social change space to reach a point where they no longer need to fight for whatever change they're fighting for. When do you think that might happen for, for you? I'm a realist. Um, Generally, um, in society, I think there will always be a need to fight for disability rights. I think that any positive change will be incremental. And unfortunately, I see a lot of the heavy lifting being done by disabled people themselves. Um, so the point where we can step down and rest would be when independent living services of it for purpose, when there's equal access to employment for those who can work, where there's affordable, inclusive transport, uh, equal access to healthcare, that we're the first thought when it comes to emergency planning for things like flooding um, uh, and that planners of the built environment remember that we exist and that we have a right to take part in in society you know we are 14.1 million people in the uk um we have value as individuals as part of our families and communities 
everybody needs support to do certain things in their lives and our support needs may be slightly different and are often overlooked but everybody needs something So this week, I'm speaking with Farzana Khan, who I have known for many, many years, you know, moving around the same sort of environments and doing very similar sort of social justice work. Farzana is a writer, a director, an educator, a cultural producer, and she's currently the executive director and co-founder of Healing Justice London, which is an organization that really looks at community health um, and sort of self transformation and repair for marginalized communities and communities that are, are very underrepresented in receiving healing and receiving therapy and receiving care that is needed to heal trauma. Um, and they focus a lot on disability justice, survivor work and trauma-informed practices um, where they basically cultivate public health provisions um, for these communities. Um, as well as that, Farzana has over 10 years of background in youth and community work, having launched and supported many, many projects um, across London, including um, work with Platform, who we've interviewed on this podcast before, who work a lot on climate justice, um, where she was also very involved in the youth project they had, Voices That Shake. Um, and she's also been involved in launching the Black Cultural Activism Map with the Stuart, Stuart Hall Foundation. There is a lot more, um, but I'm going to let Farzana sort of give you a little bit of insight into her and her work, especially in as far as it relates to land and healing. For me, the the way in which we engage with our land and, and space and our environment is, always comes back to dignity, because when you're in a space... And anyway, thinking about spatial justice and environmental justice, the key question is like, can I exist here and under what conditions and who determines those conditions and you know what quality? And I think when we're trying to do the work of healing or, you know, anti-oppression work, we're really looking to, you know, a lot of the times we'll hear they're like, we're not just surviving, we're trying to thrive. But for me, the, the baseline is dignity. Like, do can we dignify each other's lives and that's not just about being physically and materially met that's also intellectually spiritually energetically it's environmentally holds like all of these capacities that that a human being like experiences and encounters so land and spatial justice is really about changing the baseline of what we're calling in for when we think about liberation when we think about justice when we think about equity when we think about sustainability and another part you know healing justice we you know one of you know a key part of our strategy when we're thinking about healing and community-led health we know that the land is a site of healing it's an it's a resource it's also a site of a lot of harm and violence because of the ways that many of us have been displaced you know literally ripped from the from our land um and and so we really understand that this is a really powerful space to work with just on a material level like we know soil you know is an antidepressant we know that when we're working with trauma um you know i've done incredible uh programs you know working on estates around growing and and food growing and and um you know when we work with young kids who 
you know, growing up in very hostile environments, getting them to see cycles, right? So when they're struggling from very early ages, seeing actually like there might be a tough season, there might be a season where something doesn't grow. How do we like, you know, resource the the land? How do we seed? How do we, do we put in the conditions for that to, to grow at its fullest? And there's a really beautiful um, trajectory that you can support especially communities that experience a lot of trauma to to find themselves in to locate themselves in the journey of healing which isn't linear which is cyclical which is you know in the soil it's dark you know um and then you have you know the, the sunshine and all of it so there's so many ways where the land work is so key and in a very and I'll pause in the it's a very concrete way as well like we do a lot of stuff around you know abolition and trying to see abolition in our lifetime and looking at you know people who've experienced and those of us who have experienced state and violence and 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 then what I mean by that is everything from poverty to food apartheid to gentrification to you know border violence to you know um being sectioned disproportionately as people of color to like being misdiagnosed as cancer for patients all of those forms of structural violence and seeing how like the land work um, becomes a space to commune to to do community but also the herb the physical offerings of of herbs and plants and you know um you know i'm currently going through a bereavement and i've been working with the star of bethlehem their essence right now and just knowing that actually we have these very powerful i don't want to talk about the land as resource and in some ways it is but actually like because I think a lot of whiteness and racial capitalism talks about it as an asset that has to be acquired, but, but, and I don't want to, I don't think that's what we need to do, but this relationship, this, this relationship we have and this interdependence that we have um, with the ecology and being part of that. And so um, to not look at what is around us and not to be in relationship with it is where the violence is occurring. So connecting with the land, connecting with what it offers and, and also being in relationship with it and returning and investing in it is, is part of, of, of health and healing, like allows us to live well. You mentioned like dignity there and, and, you know, we did a previous episode a while ago on housing and sort of rights to housing and so on. And, found that even in the kind of UN declaration of apparently our rights to shelter, um, dignity is mentioned, you know, that we must live in a, in a, in a this, this sort of way that we live must come with a sense of dignity. And then you kind of, which is so, so unquantifiable, I guess, but you know, you sort of, you know, the shock that you see that that's even written into the kind of UN declaration and actually how far we are from it. I mean, you know, given that so many people don't have shelter at all, let alone kind of dignified shelter. So it is, it is so interesting with these principles and then actually like what 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 do they mean in practice um I mean you've already kind of touched a bit upon it um but you know people may not instinctively like associate like land with healing when they hear it and they may associate land with a lot of those more practical things that you mentioned so what is your definition of healing um and I guess in this context what is its connection or relevance to land. I think we also have to determine healing on our own terms, especially as a practice of agency and also as a as a practice of all of us being able to shape 
and understand the provisions we need. And so I'm always really weary to offer um, any type of generalized um, you know, sense of, of what healing could be, especially because a lot of those sites, like whether it's a hospital or psychiatric institutions or have, um, you know, determine health and healing in ways that um, have been centered on one body and one perspective. And usually that's the white male, able, heteronormative kind of able body. Um, and it, and so I'm, I really want to offer back into the space, like, it's really important that we, we get to like, eat, explore what healing looks like and feels like for us. But I, I, what I do want to offer in that is that there are primary um, baseline needs around housing, shelter, access to, to food, to land, to, to you know, I, I use dignifying more than I use dignity because I want it to be a verb. I want us to keep practicing it and I include, and me especially, like how are we dignifying, dignifying? Because I don't see any of these things as a given and I don't want to get into the habit of assuming that, you know, we say everyone has inherent dignity, but none of us practice it, right? Like none of us move as if that's our politics to offer each other dignity. So I think that there is, um, I want to kind of leave, make space for that. And I also, but and what I can add is that from the trauma field and particularly looking at like oppression-based trauma and the work that we're trying to build in that is like when we're in these states of, of being regulated or centered or settled or, you know, in social engagement, however you want to kind of term it, there's lots of different ways where it's those points where we're curious, where we're able to collaborate, where we're able to access connection, where we're able to um, be creative, where we're able to, you know, feel and sense intimacy on lots of different ways. And really at the heart of it, like having a deep connection with ourselves, with those around us and not static, right? Like it's not that you just get to this healed point, but that dynamically you get to to access those things sometimes a lot sometimes not a lot right because sometimes it's not appropriate to be like super connected it's not oh appropriate to be super collaborative sometimes those are not the right things to do so you know I see you know signifiers of if healing and health is being able to access those spaces of curiosity creativity collaboration connection intimacy dynamically and more importantly congruent with our reality so you know, if our reality is really oppressive, then it's appropriate that we might not be able to access all those things. Um, and that for me is is, is part of, of healing and creating a bandwidth around that. And then I think where that concretely connects to land work is that there, you know, um, a lot of the ways in which kind of mainstream mental health and physical health has, you know, been understood is one as as mental health separate from the body but that you know we have those traditional speech-based therapies those types of things and we know that you know uh, loads of um, black and global majority traditions and indigenous traditions spiritual traditions worked with the land um, whether that was using herbalism whether that was around ritual um, whether that was you know for communing or whether that was you know just um to be able to to be embedded in in ecology because there's something really powerful to 
to hold yourself in the belonging of belonging to and with land um, that is really, really powerful. And so I think that there is all of these very like material ways that being in awareness of our relationship changes how we get to receive and contribute to healing. And I'll give a kind of final example. There's a, a, a book by Francis Waller called The Wild Edge of Sorrow, and it's on grief work. Um, and obviously we're in a pandemic and also the oppression leads to premature death. So we know that there's all of this grief that we're constantly navigating, um, not just bereavement, but other forms of loss. And grief work we see as a key strategy as part of healing and healing work. Um, and um, one of the, the things that Francis Wella, I want to recognize, um, drew a lot of his work from the West African Dagara people's work, uh, you know, practices around grief and Sabon Fosome's work as well. So I just want to honor the lineage. Um, and what he presents is this kind of concept of um, the five gates of grief. But one of those gates of grief is the kind of loss we experience that we're not even aware of. So like the, you know, growing up in a, you know, in a city kind of really industrialized area where you might not hear bird song. And, you know, and I, and I remember, you know, I, I grew up in a very, you know, on an estate and was always hearing police sirens. That was my, and actually now to live in an environment where I don't hear the police, my nervous system is relaxed, it is relaxed and I hear bird song. And I, you know, so there's also this deep grief that many of us sit with, given that our ancestries, our traditions were connected to the land that we're not even probably aware of. Like we long, we feel well when we experience sun, we feel well when we experience sea, we feel well when we're around. And so I think there's also so much unknown around what healing needs to take place, given that some of us have been born into environments where we're so removed from our relationship to the environment, we don't even know that we're longing for it or we're grieving it. I mean, that actually leads me quite nicely onto my next question. So what is it perhaps about either land or our relationship to land that isn't healing at present? Colonialism, <laughs> uh, you know, the racial capitalism, the, who owns land, who owns space, um, who has designed, it's not just land, it's also the design of space, like the way this, you know, I can speak to, to London is designed, is hostile design, like it's designed, not, it's not just the spikes for, um, you know, so that people who are homeless, you know, can't sleep on the, um, sleep somewhere um, or access shelter, it's in every way it's designed um, to be hostile, so I think that there is um, who own, owns the land and Aurora Levins Morales has a beautiful piece in Medicine Stories where she talks about ownership shatters ecology and um, and um, and so I think that one there's the ac acquired relationship um, and who owns land but also then what is done with that land and we look you know some of the work that we are looking at is around like what does it mean to communally steward and hold and you know facilitate land um and to understand you belong to it not that it is it's not the other way around um and i also think 
on top of the acquisition and the design element of it, the intentional and strategic exclusion and separation from border violence to, to access to park to estates and all of that, like I think is is also really key. So there's I think many facets to the way in which like land and and violence around land and how many of us can't go to the countryside without you know being you know, terrified of you know being shot or something you know because those things happen so I think that um all of that feels you know very real and there's you know and then we connect it to food and you know quality of food and access to food and all of these things gentrification it just layers and layers of how it's operating right now and then I would the final thing I would add which is more a reflection to those of us that are in kind of climate spaces is that a lot of the times historically I think it's less so now you know we've talked about saving the planet and 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 that's also that savior complex right like it's something to be mastered it's something to to own and actually like not allowing ourselves to be humbled by you know what many of our spiritual traditions would, would would reveal to us is that we're in this like deep profound relationship and so I think that's a Eurocentric um, notion or of like how you are in relationship to the land like for myself I know there's like this ayah in Surah Yasin where there's an instruction to salam the tree because that's your ancestor or in, in different very interpretations it's your aunt and one it's ancestor so it's like you don't walk past the tree without you know acknowledging it and offering it a salam piece so I think that and there's so many traditions that speak to that so I think we've got a lot to do in the left which is to change also uh, this hierarchical relationship and you know you can look at Caliban and the Witch and Sylvia Federici's work and you know lots of people who speak to um, what it means to, to exist in that hierarchy. You mentioned climate spaces there, um, Fazana, and um, the, the the season we just did before this one um, was about climate justice or climate change or whatever. It was kind of trying to move on from COP26 and look at what has all had been in existence way before it and what should be in existence past it in terms of fighting for climate justice. But um, so like, what is it that we, you know, what can we give back to heal the land as well as it perhaps you know healing us and are those two things mutually inclusive or exclusive like is it just you know innate that if humans are to live the way that they feel serves them the best and heals them the best then it will damage the land or if what the will you know is what the land needs what we need or not necessarily i i absolutely believe in generative ecologies i completely believe that that's not just how we I think that's the way that we have to live all the time and again I can draw to you know a part of my own spiritual practice where we say like you have to leave everything better than you found it or if you're about to die and you've got the seed plant the seed right because we believe it within the Muslim tradition of um this thing of that and, and I know permaculture and other traditions talk about it, which is that there is that you're always enhancing something, enriching something, um, and you're leaving it better. This is also why people use other the fragrance, because you're supposed to leave the room smelling sweeter, you know, so these concepts are not new. And I think that when we are um, thinking about generative ecologies, 
I think that's absolutely how we should be navigating through the world. And I think that that ties into survivor work that we do, abolition work, which is saying our human potential and our capacity isn't to move from the baseline, but is always to, to innovate and imagine and be curious and to, to figure out how we, we add, create more life for ourselves and, and one another on the planet. And so I think that's a value that absolutely we should all be striving for. And there's no way to do that without being in relationship with the, the, the land and our environments because that's that's part of all of that there is an importance of your personal and individual relationship that is deepened we all because that's your relationship because this stuff is relational um and that there is a structural effort needs to be made like actually the ability to access the land actually to have time to take care of the land actually so all of that structural work has to happen in tandem and the bit that I think we we all get to to explore, you know, over the years, like, you know, like now I know I can't walk past the tree without salaming it. But 10 years ago, I wasn't that person. Now, you know, when I work with particular herbs and plants, like I know, you know, because plants are dosing, they're medicine, right? And, you know, having been really lucky to have shaman teachers and different teachers to know, okay, when I feel this plant, I know, I have to stop working with it or I know that I can work with it and I have permission to work with it. You know, having this deep interdependent relationship with a consensual relationship. Yeah. And you'll, you know, you'll work with incredible herbalists like Rabia Mali who'll say, you know, you don't get to forage without permission. You gotta ask the tree. And I think that those things can be nurtured and grown, but we also have to, that that's the stuff that we can do in ourselves in ourselves. And that's and that you have to have. The privilege of time and space so there I just kind of want to hold the nuance and complexity around it not that in any way I've resolved it by what I'm saying but that I that all these truths are happening at the same time and and um and I believe it's possible and and we we do that like in our intimate relationships we try and add love we try and enrich we try to make possible even when we're not successful and I think that that's why we're here otherwise and this is why you know a lot of our work at healing justice we talk about transformation and transformative justice because we don't see this work as it holds that generative politics that generative um value that it's it's not just um staying at the baseline but inviting ourselves to to more within the realities of what we have So we've, you know, we've talked a fair, you know, we've talked a bit about what healing is and what land is, and then maybe where they intersect. But, um, you know, in terms of healing, I guess um, we we have seen, like, I think a shift in recent maybe years um, in our kind of collective, yeah. or let's say even maybe more mainstream understanding of healing trauma. Um, my mum often says to me, and you know, she was a refugee. Um, in her 20s or whatever and she always often says to me god the things you guys talk about now and know about now you know even if maybe actually situations for refugees are getting so much worse than they were maybe when we came nonetheless at least the services you seem to be aware of that you need to be giving to the young people you work with now are just miles ahead of 
we didn't use the word trauma when when I you know when we arrived yeah. right it just wasn't a thing you didn't talk about PTSD related treatments and all these kinds of things so there seems to have been a shift um, in what trauma even means what it is what causes it um, what practices we need to implement as a society and perhaps as and, and as individuals to protect you know to to heal it but do you feel that this narrative shift is actually seeing tangible results like is it actually trickling down um where it should or is it still kind of remaining like academic and theoretical like how is it matching up um i think it, it's both of those things and you nailed it really like you articulated it so well um i i have to say that it, things are changing because 10 years ago, people would not have understood healing justice, mm -hmm. right? Like 10 years ago, you know, I mean, we're still fighting. It's still really hostile. There's still people, you know, we know we, we're all the embodiment of so much trauma. So it's scary. It's not just even that people don't want to engage with it. You know, you say trauma and our bodies shut down. You say distress and our bodies are shutting down, you know? Um, so I don't even want to say that, you know, people don't want to engage. We don't, often don't have the capacities and, and the tools and the mechanisms to even transition into that conversation, to lean into that conversation or to do that work. But I do see that the connective dots of, are emerging. And I think things like the pandemic, you know, a, you know, for a lot of people were like, oh my God, now we finally get that it's not some arbitrary gene that has led to disproportionate black and global majority people dying it's actually cumulative trauma. It's like the weakened immune systems. It's all of these other things that have helped kind of highlight, but also, you know, we've had reports like the Marmot Review in 2010 and 2020 that have documented this. We've had incredible, you know, scholarship led by black and global majority folks that have really like mapped this out. So it's been said, it's been evidence, it's been tracked. So there's been an intentional silencing or erasing around all of this. Um, so I do think there's definitely some shifts and I think there's a lot of unlearning to do, you know, the way that I was trained in talk trauma years ago to, you know, some of the incredible work that I've been able to do with um, NKEM and Defo, who I think is one of the leading, you know, practitioners around oppression-based trauma. And I'm really lucky to to work with her and also learn from her and seeing you know you know every time I'm with her I'll, I'll learn a new thing and I'll be like which I have to also unlearn from historic historically and some of that is because our contexts have changed there's new needs and there's new responses and there's escalating uh, trauma and some of it is because um some of the historical approaches were you know when we look at you know mental health institutions a lot of them and psychiatric institutions were around really came from a really carceral policing logic they were too you know you know hysteria and you know they were deeply gendered they were deeply deeply classist deeply racist so that eugenic side of it of, of these institutions is still there the logics are still there you know electrical um treatments are still being used in this country you know electric shock therapy and 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 also that a lot of the 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 kind of the western knowledge production around the medical sciences relied on the separating the body from from the mind you know that i think therefore i am which meant that it it has an epistemological failure like it has built into it a 
an inability to know what we need um even the fact that we call it mental health when it's our whole body it's our whole experience you know all of this stuff so i think that um things are changing and there is so much work to do um so we can appropriately meet one another and also why this has to be a social civic skill um and really thinking about like you know i do a lot of work around de-escalation and distress and some of that i've had to do just of not professionally just personally when people are experiencing psychosis and we're all experiencing psychosis in some ways right because of what we're living and navigating and so what what you know what does it mean for all of us to like know and identify without pathologizing or weaponizing trauma or all of that but actually being like living with living with these you know broad and expansive sense of what health is what um, ill health might be what recovery might be what what is just life right and I think those things you know I have a lot of people around me who are bipolar but you also see you know what would be classed as experiencing mania and I say that in quotations but that's also where they access their genius and their creativity and so I think that there is you know a, a lot that that nuance that needs to be brought and that work is being done. I don't want to ignore it. It just needs to be mainstreamed and connected. And it has to be in all our hands because we have to like, we apply it. We are the ones who work with it. And that is, is social medicine. It's medicine. And, and it brings back to the truth that your body knows how it to heal and you know how to heal. And sometimes it might not be able to do that itself, but it will, it can and will be able to identify what it needs so that someone else or something else can bring it or support it or um you know scaffold you towards that um so i guess um for that, i mean you know you've, well, you've spoken a lot about um the, the issues we're battling but also obviously about a lot of what's being done <laughs> um and i guess for anyone listening um, who is inspired by this, you know, who's either a bit new, to, you know, like we, we try with this podcast to aim it at people who might actually just be a bit newer to these, these issues and it's a bit of an access point for them. So they might not, it might not be obvious, you know, where to start. So if people um, want to do something to kind of, you know, fight for this cause, um, be that land justice, healing justice, and I guess the intersection of the two, um, what are some quite tangible like steps that they could take you know what might be some starting points towards supporting this movement maybe supporting your work more specifically or even maybe just starting their own healing journey if that is what it is what we've got um which is quite exciting is that we're launching a two-year program called rehearsing freedoms and rehearsing freedoms is inspired by the quote but also the you know decades of practice and what we might need um from Ruth Gilmore Wilson talks about, you know, abolition is life in rehearsal, but also that oppression leads to premature death. So how do we create life affirming institutions? And we're also like moving away from like right now, because we've got so much tightening and escalating harm instead of organizing around the kind of individual needs, which we can and are working towards doing and we all should be doing what's the structural capacity that we're building what's the structural shifts and how can we build those kind of life affirming institutions and um, because 
we need the infrastructures, we need the capacities, we need the support systems. And that is the stuff we're kind of working towards. So Rehearsing Freedoms is a two-year program that we're working on to create collective capacity with one another. Um, and it has loads of facets. It has a public program where you can learn, workshop skill shares. There's, you know, going to be a site-specific festival next year. There's you know, um, opportunities to kind of do trainings and teachings um, as well, as well as movement, folks who are in movement spaces to kind of build their own capacity and, and ideas around it. So do look out for that and kind of, um, and that is an intentional space that we are, have been designing in response to that question and what people have asked for and what people need. So then in a couple of years, you know, once we've done some of that immediate resourcing, internal resourcing, capacity building, we can kind of vision and we can kind of try and vision together what what health can look like, including the land. And for us, you know, we we vision, you know, any form of like healthcare provision has a relationship to the land, you know, is land based, all of this stuff. So that's a space that you can hopefully join us in and also shape with us. Um, I also think for me, there was um, a life changing book for me nearly 10 years ago now, I don't know, long, a long time ago, but Aurora Levin, Mora, Levin's Morales book, um, you know, who, who comes from an, you know, ecology background, medicine stories and medicine stories really kind of holds those, those intersections of land of, um, you know, health of, of justice. So I would recommend that. And then um, what we've also done and healing at healing justice is we've, we, we've got um, a herbalism workshop at phytology who do incredible work um, around, you know, they're a, a pocket, you know, they're a, a land uh, based uh, space artist and also kind of a pocket space in Bethnal green. And we've got some, um uh, herbalism sessions with rabia mali coming up so you can kind of learn and practically get involved but yeah people like rabia mali who do that work and you can kind of and also go into phytology and connecting i know that ubele black roots land in our names there's lots of people and lots of spaces where that work is being done so connecting supporting you know getting in involved um in those spaces is all in that direction and the final point i'll i will close on is um you know you may have heard of these concepts of like rewilding or um you know like in that example I gave earlier of like you know the grief that we might have from being disconnected to the land or not hearing birdsong or not having being able to put your feet on earth you know like those types of things um actually presenting yourself with opportunities so even be like once a month I might go and like offer you know, like offer a prayer to the sea or, you know, plant a seed or something so that you, in your own terms, in, in ways that feel appropriate to you, um, can, can develop that relationship because um, I, I think it, it, the land is loud, is loud. Our environments are loud and it will have its own relationship with you beyond anything that I can say. So actually like, go and play and find out and you you know like spices have a conversation with you like herbs have a conversation so go and explore and see what they have to say to you that they couldn't say to me or they would couldn't 
offer to Mona. So I say go and play and see. Lovely. Go and play. Is that's 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 really nice. Um, so Fazana, um, my my last question to you, and we ask this of everyone who um, comes on this podcast. But um, when, if ever, do you think your work will no longer be needed? I hope in our lifetimes. That's how I'm working. Like I'm working, so it's in our lifetime, and that's how I'm in the practice. And I think it was Janie from We Level Up who said something the other day about like, this work is also legacy work, right? And so we, I, you know, we, we work to make this field redundant, the work that we do redundant, absolutely not necessary. And we don't get disheartened and disillusioned if we don't harness the fruits or harvest the fruits in, in our life. Time. Um, and I like that, like plant the seed. And I I also just want to say on a personal level, um, you know, I've lost quite a lot of folks this year and um, last year. And I know that many of us come from very fragile ecosystems and we're so confronted with our mortality. And so, and and you know, like many of us do burn out in this work. And you know, Mona and I, you and I have talked about this as well. Like it's 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 really it's hard on the soul it's and it's deep work and so in that I think we can offer us the generosity and we should be offering us the generosity to say as much as is possible to be able to do and leaving space for other generations and other folks to to move into it so that we are creating an ecology and this is sustainable and that we haven't missed out on the time to play and the time to grow and the time to integrate just as the land reminds us you know that we do we honor the cycles it shows us to shine to bloom to to, to go into the land to, that we're doing all of that too for ourselves so I just want to hold in our lifetimes and for tomorrow always right Fazayo so what how did you feel about that how has that aided your your transformation <laughs> um a lot there right um and definitely i mean my notebook is full after listening to those two interviews definitely so much um learning uh in those conversations i think the initial thing the thing at the top of my mind that sticks out is just nikki's story and what she shared really was such a powerful recounting of how important civil action is in change and just how much that right might be slipping away from us. It really reinforced that for me. I mean, she recounted both personal and like wider society um, tales of social resistance um, and how those things had directly led us here and impacted us and our way of life now and all of the rights that we have now. Um, and it just, yeah, it just struck me. Obviously I know these things and we talk about these things all the time, but it just struck me the way she put it, how important that has been for the change that's come before us, but also how much under threat that is. And specifically with marginalized communities. I mean, we often focus on communities like black and people of color, but listening to her as a disabled person, it really highlighted for me, actually there are other marginalized. It's almost silly because 
we talk about marginalized, but it's almost everyone except for the standard white male, <laughs> middle-class white male, which is such a massive group of people. And within that marginalized, even some voices are further marginalized and we don't hear from people like Tyler again, I guess in the first episode, you know, there's almost <laughs> a system of marginalization and hearing things like her carer being arrested as a tactic, you know, um, yeah, it just really struck a chord, chord with me. and. I guess brings us full circle to where we started with our kinder scout resistance and mm. <laughs> access to land. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I I absolutely loved, I mean, the story of how the police car couldn't actually take her away to <laughs> exactly. arrest her because they themselves had closed the streets or whatever. And anyway, I guess the fact that, yeah, there are so many restrictions on even how we can congregate on public land because protest is just a lot of people being in the same streets or whatever, which, you know, in theory, there should be no restriction on. I mean, I... You know, I feel like, as we, as always happens with these topics, you know, they, you know, they they go so broad and and somehow all link up, you know, as as they always do. But I think something around, with both of them, um, really drill, drilling into the idea of what we even mean by healing, um, mm. both a bit more abstract and a bit more literal. So, the fact that. Um, it, it can both, you know, they, they both spoke about healing in very, very literal terms, right? So like land might produce herbs and you might eat those herbs and they might be good for you, right? Or running water, you know, whatever will be coming from the land and you need to drink that or sunshine gives you vitamin D. Or So there could be some very literal and practical things, but for both of them, it was a lot bigger. It wasn't just if you have organic vegetables growing out of the land, they're better for you than chemically, you know, produced vegetables. Mm. It was also sort of about healing as something social as something emotional as you know going beyond the kind of medical realm and yeah. actually that it can be so damaging for us so unhealthy for us to be so disconnected from land from disconnected from each other to live in these crowded cluttered places full of sounds and noises and yeah. sirens and you know when Nikki sort of said I thought I had depression but it was actually just <laughs> capitalism I was, do you know what I keep saying to our guests can we please start a t-shirt line because yeah, yeah. that just says it all in one slogan doesn't it it really does it really does I mean that one would sell 100, 100%. Yeah. obviously you have to make it with like you know organically responsibly sourced and we donate the yeah. profits into the cause, of course, because we're Obviously. not looking to profit. No, absolutely things. not. But still, that was brilliant. I mean, it just kind of sums it up, right? It like does. we've set up the world in a way that damages us so much on a daily basis. And, you know, Fazana really speaks about it as grief. Like yeah, she I actually speaks so. about it as a loss and a grief that we may not even know that we're experiencing. No, I found that I found that so powerful because it's... That, yeah, like you say, there's one thing being diagnosed with an illness, with an ailment, um, but just how our everyday makes us ill. And again, another statement that really stood out to me was when Farzana spoke about growing up and constantly hearing police sirens. And I thought, you know what? Me too. <laughs> like, mm. um, Literally, I go to bed, I hear police sirens. I'm driving, I'm hearing mm -hmm. police sirens. I'm on the bus, I'm hearing police. Like, and just what that does to your body. And yeah. I think grief is such a great way to explain it because everyone understands the strength of grief and the the weight of grief. Um, so when it's aligned with something like this, it just it was just really, really powerful to hear it put like that. And again, with Farzana, what I, I really liked about what she said is she identified land as a place of healing, but also as a place of a lot of violence for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think they both did. Um, and yeah, how we, I think what's important in even that slogan, um, 
I thought I was depressed, but it's just capitalism, is that by not identifying it as bigger than ourselves and as a shared experience, we almost then come, come into ourselves and start blaming ourselves for however we're feeling when mm -hmm. actually, when we say actually it's the system or actually, yeah, we've got a shared grief or actually I'm actually being disconnected from how I'm designed to be, how my ancestors have always been. We realize that it's much bigger than ourselves and then maybe our solutions also become much bigger than ourselves. And I think that might actually help us move from medical diagnosis taking pills doing and go more into social diagnosis maybe because mm. if we look at society almost as where <laughs> things are going wrong then rebuilding society or accessing different types of society can maybe also make sense i don't know if i'm going on a really big tangent well, here but <laughs> i mean it's kind of like the journey we've already gone on in in this season saying that we almost started with um with movement right and sort of having nowhere like actually not being settled somewhere and that maybe again is both emotionally and mentally distressing as well as very practically like where do i if i was to grow vegetables where would i grow them or you know if i did need a comfortable space to sleep so i can get my eight hours and recover where would i get that you know if i'm if i can't be warm or you know create you know a fire or whatever then again I'm going to get really cold and I'm going to get sick so it's a, it's a very practical thing on one hand but then when you know you spoke about the the violence and obviously the reason that even a lot of people have to move from land is pure mm. violence you know mm. it's violence over land and the fight for land so then you're first overcoming that and then you might just about start to belong somewhere like we spoke about last time and then you, once you belong and at least you're going, okay, I can breathe. I've got at least like somewhere that I can be that I'm not gonna get moved from. Like my actual life is not in immediate danger. I mean, that's when you then only just then does the journey begin. And mm. I mean, I see that in the young people I work with who've arrived in the UK, supposedly their end destination, their safe destination after they have been through the absolutely most harrowing journeys and not had a home and not belonged anywhere for years only then does it feel like we're just beginning. I mean, the level of pain and trauma you then have mm. to heal um, in every possible way through community, through the right yeah. food, through the right exercise, through maybe some medication, through therapy, through everything, you know, that every all of our guests have been speaking about for the last few episodes. Not to have a, add a curveball, because I know we, we've moved on from our learn section, but it's reminding me of what you're always talking to me about, and I'm going to forget the man's name, but it's a, the pyramid of needs. Ah, um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It, yes, we should link to that as well. Hundred yes. percent that you cannot heal trauma without as addressing all needs from basic needs and physical needs right up to our more, you know, fulfillment and self-esteem and educational needs. It's a holistic thing. I mean, that's always how we've tried to work with young people. I can, I could hear with Fazana, with Nikki, with Javier last time. I mean, that's how all these people are working because they're recognizing that, right? You think you're talking about land and the next minute you're talking about music and dance and food and all, you know what I mean? So it, it, it's, you cannot separate them. Yeah. If the human experience is a holistic one. Um, yeah. And I think it's actually by trying to make it not holistic that we're also ill. Yeah, and that comes back to, I mean, I feel like I keep saying the powerful way, but Fosanna had a way with words that I think was really quite powerful. Um, what she said about um, dignity and actually making it a verb and dignifying and making it an active thing because often we use words passively but actively actually making it active and looking at how we give people dignity actively um that really like resonates with that and yeah like you say looking at the 
the person as a whole being and all of the different things that connect um understanding that that foundation is needed but this person also needs xyz simultaneously um in order to reach a place of sort of liberation justice equity etc um and that not being sort of like um, a hierarchical relationship where possible where it's like a savior and a victim but that being just through relationships and again i feel like this is something we, we repeat constantly which is a lot of this change comes through just having conversations and both of them said looking around you who's not in the room those are the people that you probably need to speak to the most mm -hmm. um and preferably like nikki said at design stage and like um andre said <laughs> last episode mm -hmm. and like tyler said the episode before if you actually remember we exist, that's when often we don't have to rectify mistakes like putting pebbles in car parts because mm -hmm. you remember I exist, you invite me to the meeting and I tell you, oh, can we use um, tarmac instead mm. because it's easier for me to wheel my wheelchair, you know? Um, so yeah, so that we don't even have to get to the healing and the repairing exactly. stage, it can just be preventative. Um, and as always, it's gone incredibly deep and existential and we're going to try and see if we can give you some tangible things to do. But I mean, you know, um, both of our guests were obviously proper fighting, working at sort of activist level. And I think, as we always say, um, just in a very tangible way, it's, it's very effective to look around you in your actual own proximity in your own area just because you can probably mm -hmm. do more and see more results, you know, looking at grassroots level at what groups are out there. Um, obviously, Deepak have branches exactly. all over. Um, and we're going to link to obviously everyone's websites, Healing Justice London. You can check out and support. Switch. Yeah, exactly. Most um, organizations have local branches. And if not, there are loads and loads of grassroots groups that aren't big enough to have local branches, but you will find in your local area dealing with a variety of issues. So definitely um, being involved on a local level, I think, is one of those things our guests say a lot. Um, and then, yeah, um, Nikki in our interview mentioned a lot of things that I think fall under something called social prescribing. Um, and social prescribing is essentially the official term, like the recognized term for moving away from medical models. So if you go to the GP and say, I'm depressed, rather than um, prescribe you some pills, they'll say, oh, there's this community group that you might want to go to, this community garden. I think that might help with how you're feeling, et cetera, et cetera. So um, social prescribing is like an alternative, a more social model of dealing with um, some of our illnesses and ailments. Um, and Nikki mentioned things like arts on prescription, farming on prescription. So yes, that just using different ways to tackle um, what we're going through. Um, and I know it works, I've seen it in action and I've actually had some people, young people referred to me through, from GPs through social prescribers um, because they felt that engaging in the arts would be more beneficial to them than, you know, putting, giving them some pills or medicalizing them. So if you are feeling like you need assistance or someone that you think might need assistance, then definitely check out social prescribing in your local area. Or if you feel you might be a good social prescriber um, and someone that might be able to connect people to different areas, look that up. I know in my local area, it's through, through our um, voluntary service council that um, social prescribers are accessed or through our GPs. So just Google your local area and social prescribing and something should come up. 
Yes, and as always, we were recommended a lot to read. Um, Farzana in particular recommended a lot you could read if you feel like you actually just want to explore these themes more to first see how they resonate with you and then where you might take it. And we will link, you know, to, to, to reading lists. As always, it does seem to begin with unpicking a lot of our pre-existing ideas and our habits and our behaviors. And that can take a while actually to sort of unravel. And as Nikki said, if none of us are actually depressed, it's all just capitalism, then that's a big one to tackle. But we might want to look at how we do that. How do we tackle capitalism as, as maybe the root cause of a lot of our diseases? But... <laughs> That's not, you know, we probably won't have the exact recipe for that for you today. We have a lot of previous episodes you can check out, which actually do touch upon how we might challenge capitalism in various ways, including episodes on actually what capitalism is and what the alternatives to it might be. Um, and um, for our final episode next time in this series, we will be looking a bit at what it kind of means to move beyond that, move beyond this model of scarcity and violence and competition and all these incredibly damaging um, conditions in our society that probably are making us all ill and what it might look like to live in a different kind of world. Yeah, looking super looking forward to that one and full of practical tips, hopefully. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> um, so hopefully we haven't scared you all off. Um, and um, for now, maybe you can at least get out and heal a bit in the sun which is out, almost seems to be out every time we're recording stuff yeah, inside. Yeah, and then as soon as we <laughs> close the door on the studio yeah. or we're on our mics, rain, torrential 100%, rain hits us. <laughs> 100%. Um, but yeah, so um, nice to not see you, but speak with you all. And um, yeah, we hope to um, have you with us again next time. Yeah. Um, in the meantime, do follow us on Instagram and Twitter at untelevised underscore TV, because that's the best place for us to hear you I feel like you listen to us a lot but through those channels you can message us you can um direct message us if you're shy you can comment you can there's all sorts that you can do to interact with us and we try and explore some of the bigger topics around um what we've been speaking about you can also see the faces of our guests and stuff like that so it's a great place to be if you're not on social media platforms um i envy you <laughs> and you can email us at talk to untelevised at gmail.com and the two is the digit two um so yeah until next time those are two great places to find us and keep in contact with us um yeah see you then or speak to you then <laughs> bye Call me a dreamer Idealistic believer with my head in a cloud. I don't wanna come down from my feet. Or oh, planning on starting around from my ground. My ground is a cloud.